Greetings, friends, and welcome to I Think Speech. I am Hazel Archer Ginsburg. And maybe you remember at our last Tune In Tuesday, we talked about comets and how they were sent by the spirits of love and harmony into our solar system on a, quote, God-willed mission to purify the astral realm. This place that we all share, where our hopes and fears, our desires live, right? And it gets, you know, a little crowded in there sometimes with all of the, the media images and things trying to titillate us and distract us and, and uh, all the narratives and, and uh, true and false images reside. So these comets and meteor showers come to, to you know, clear away the cobwebs and, and all of that stuff and, and just to open up uh, a special conscious impulse into human evolution. And so I bring it up again today because, dear friends, starting tonight and peaking on Earth Day, April 22nd, the Lyrids are making their appearance, right? These springtime meteors, which get their name from the constellation Lyra, which is shaped like a harp with a, a tail that goes to the bright star Vega. And maybe you know that from Greek mythology, this is the lyre of Orpheus, the harmonious instrument that the virtuoso played at the gates of Hades in an ill-fated attempt to win back Eurydice from the underworld. So Orpheus, yeah, is the son of Apollo and the muse Calliope. So being a demigod, his singing and playing were so beautiful that animals and trees and rocks, all life were moved to dance enchanted by his music. And some folks speculate that this was a former incarnation of Marie Steiner von Sievers. Now, Rudolf Steiner always said, oh, you know, he couldn't really talk about her, her biography because she was a, quote, spiritual being. So it's interesting to think of her as Orpheus. Uh, and some people also say that uh, Marie Steiner was also, in a former life, the famous Greek philosopher Hypatia of Alexandria. It's interesting that they both met their death by being basically ripped to shreds. <laughs> and perhaps we can imagine the, the Lyrids, this meteor shower, as being the tears of Orpheus falling down from heaven. And so we'll we'll get into those myths a little bit in, in a little bit, but let's think about this, this meteor shower. It's one of the oldest ones recorded in history. Uh, Chinese historical rec records noted in the fourth month of 687 BC, quote, stars fell like rain. And so, then we discovered, you know, later on uh, that these were pieces of this comet called Thatcher. 
which orbits the sun every 415 years and uh, is projected to return around 2280. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, all meteors come from leftover comet particles and bits from broken asteroids. So uh, when comets come around the sun, they, they leave this, this dusty trail behind them. And every year, when the Earth passes through these trails of debris, and, and it allows the, the bits to um, collide with our atmosphere, where they disintegrate to create fiery, colorful streaks in the sky. And we can remember what astrosopher Elizabeth Freda says, that yes, these comets are purifiers of the spiritual atmosphere within the solar system, that they're scavengers of the gods, right? They're on a mission. And that's what these these meteor showers and comets are there, right? To expel the impure astral forces from the cosmos to, you know, allow new impulses to come in. So let's let's open ourselves to receive these new impulses that are happening now, friends. Another opportunity, right? And these lyrids, um, they're you know, you might want to check it out. You might actually want to participate. They're, they're going to come in. They're, they're supposed to be fast and, and quite bright. Uh, they frequently leave glowing dust trains behind them as they streak through the Earth's atmosphere. So you get a treat. You know, you can, you can watch these, these tails, right, which are, are often seen for several seconds afterwards. And so, yeah, the lyrids are best viewed after moonset and before dawn. So, you know, Going out in the middle of the night is what it's all about. You have to go far away from the city. There's street lights and all such. And, you know, come prepared. You know, sleeping bag, a blanket, a lawn chair, because you really want to lay flat on your back. And they say, you put your feet facing east and look up. And, you know, try to be in a place where you could take in as much of the sky as possible. And, you know, give it some time because it's going to take at least 30 minutes for your eyes to just get used to the dark and adapt. And then you'll start to see the meteors. And, yeah, be patient because the show, you know, it lasts until dawn. So you know, there's plenty of time to catch a glimpse. And maybe we will receive a message from our dear Marie Steiner. And we might want to really kind of look into the stories of Orpheus and Hypatia as well, right? So, yeah, Orpheus, the legendary musician, poet, founder, and prophet of the Orphic Mysteries. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Uh, the major stories uh, about him are, are centered on his ability, like I said, to charm all living things with his music. And his attempt to retrieve his wife from the underworld. But he looked back at her before she had crossed the threshold into the world of the living. And so, right, she vanished forever. And then, of course, the other famous story is his death at the hands of the, 
the uh, the minards uh, of Dionysus, the menads, who basically were tired of his neglect because he was uh, in such deep mourning that they he wasn't paying attention to them anymore. And also he was putting his energy into the god Apollo, right? Think about that in a minute, this transition between the old and the new get you in trouble sometimes when you're you're standing at that turning point of time. So yeah, Orpheus, one of the handful of Greek heroes to visit the underworld and return. So that, right, his music and song even had power over Hades. And yeah, Orpheus, an augur, a seer, practiced the magical arts uh, and astrology. It founded cults to not only Dionysus, but like I said, Apollo, and prescribed the mystery rites that were preserved in these Orphic texts. And so the, 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 the main theme of, of not looking back, right? This is, this is an interesting thing to think about. It's an essential precaution in, in Jason's uh, raising of the Clathonic Brimo Hecate, right, under Medea's guidance, those stories of the Argonauts. And of course, it's reflected in the biblical story of Lot's wife, right, when escaping from Sodom. But more directly, the story of Orpheus is, is similar to the ancient Greek tales of Persephone, captured by Hades, and, and you know, similar stories of Adonis, captive in the underworld. However, the, the developed form of the Orpheus myth was, was entwined with the, these, these Orphic mystery cults. And, and later in Rome, with the, the development of, of uh, uh, the, the cult of the soul Invictus. So yeah, the, 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 the sun that, that uh, never leaves. So according to the legend, Orpheus, who was once a devout, uh, you know, a, do a de devotee of Dionysus, towards the end of his life, disdained all the worship of, of all, the other, all the other gods except for Apollo, the god of the sun, thought in some versions to be his father. And so one morning, he goes past the oracle of Dionysus on his way to the mountain, to salute his god at dawn, but was ripped to shreds by the uh, Thracian maenads for not honoring his previous patron, Dionysus. And also, like I said, because they're mad with jealousy over his inattention to them. And so the story goes that his head and lyre, still singing mournful songs, floated down the river into the sea after which the winds and the waves carried his head and his lyre to an island where the inhabitants buried his head and a shrine was built in his honor, where uh, his, his oracle prophesied until Apollo came and took him and his lyre and put it into the night sky. Yeah, I love these stories. So that's that's the the radiant point for these meteor showers up there uh, in the constellation of Lyra. 
So maybe we could listen and, and hear of some of these mysteries from this, this God, this demigod Orpheus. And yeah, while we're at it, we can take a look at Hypatia, the greatest philosopher of Alexandria, a true martyr to the old values of learning. And she also was torn to bits by a mob of incensed Christians this time. Um, not because she was a woman, but because her learning was so profound, her skills so extensive that, you know, people were jealous. They, she reduced everyone uh, into in, embarrassed silence, right? They, they couldn't argue with her, so basically they, they murdered her. Um, yeah, some people say knowledge is a dangerous thing. And in the case of this woman philosopher, Hypatia of Alexandria, they, they would be right. <clears throat> yeah, her story is one of the most meaningful intellectuals. She was an intellectual of the Byzantine Empire. Inspiring and terrifying because, right, how she met her end. But so she was born in uh, 355, and uh, her father was uh, a leading mathematician and taught her everything she knew. And uh, so she became uh, a math whiz and astronomer, a thinker of the highest order, living in a world landscaped by religious conflict. Again, there's this transition point that she stood at. And she was an extremely popular lecturer and favored teacher. Everybody wanted to, to be in, in her seminars. She was also a known, quote, pagan who espoused the Neoplatonist ideas of the famous uh, philosopher Plato, right? And these teachings, which of course later gave way to all of Western thought, promoted an intense concern for the quality of human life as being ethical, spiritual, and even political, right, in the, in the sense of, of, of human rights. And it was really the beginnings of thinking with both the heart and the mind. So Hypatia and Plato both asserted that there were uh, abstract objects existing in what they termed a third realm, really this, this uh, spiritual realm that united the external and the internal world of consciousness. So in simple terms, these concepts promoted the idea that there are you know, parts of physical reality which, which we can't explain because they have a spiritual origin. And that uh, these this spirituality really unites everyone and and brings us together with with the universe in a central image of the good, which is the source of all things, with the power to to elevate the the human experience through virtue, study, and meditation. So while these these musings were, were certainly based in the esoteric. They were also a major influence on Christian mysticism and were widely ad, uh, adopted by the, the Christian church who took Plato's words as God's thoughts. 
And unlike her, her male counterparts, uh, Plato, Socrates, Hypatia, you know, she was never really uh, fully recognized for her philosophical accomplishments, you know, but was silenced, you know, by this, this bloody contempt of those who feared her power and intelligence. Even though she was credited with inventing the, the astrolobe, which is used in the study of astronomy. And, you know, she furthered the platonic concepts of her predecessor. Basically, people really only know her because of her grisly death, right? But, you know, let, I, I just feel compelled a little bit to give a little bit of this history uh, because you have to see that when you come to these moments of transition, these, these turning points of time, there's, there's always a before and an after, right? So 600 years before her birth, Alexander the Great, uh, we could talk about this individuality as being connected to Ita Wegman, right? And uh, Aristotle to, to Rudolf Steiner. So Alexander the Great founded the Egyptian city of Alexandria, right? So there's a connection here. And made it the, the most culturally sophisticated learning center in all of the ancient world. It was not only beautiful to behold, but it but it contained more than than half a million scrolls. Right, this uh, beloved uh, li library of Alexandria, the famous one. Right, and although this this time in ancient Egypt was filled with you know, there's a lot of darkness, slavery, violence, religious unrest. Alexandria was a city overflowing with artifacts of academia, influential enough to, to spur a, a movement of intellectualism in a time of extreme ignorance. It was a place of hope for a brighter future filled with, with uh, decency and discussion, um, you know, which, which is, was a counterpoint to the, the dismal human depravity uh, that was known around most of the world at that time. But Alexandria, it did not last. It started to go into a slow decline when, you know, Julius Caesar came in, conquered the city, and burned down the uh, the priceless library. Right? So by the time Hypatia was born, the Roman Empire was split, leaving Alexandria in a state of religious pandemonium, really. <laughs> So Christians, Jews, pagans, they were kind of, you know, they were all living there, but they were fighting for, for dominance in the area. And uh, this contributed to um, the, the disarray that was happening. And when the Roman emperor ordered all the pagan temples to be destroyed and any remaining shreds of knowledge or history in the city's libraries and museums, you know, that, that all started to just uh, disappear and a, and a church was built on the site. Kind of a typical thing. But Hypatia was described as exceedingly beautiful and fair of form, in speech articulate and logical, in her actions prudent and public-spirited, 
and the rest of the city gave her suitable welcome and accorded her special respect. And that was a quote from somebody I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, she never married. She lived a chaste life free from the complications of men, uh, basically. But yeah, you know, this was also something that Plato asserted that, um, you know, having a family was, was not uh, congenial to the life of the mind. <laughs> Um, so, right. So how did this, this woman who was such, so highly respected come to be brutally dragged through the streets of Alexandria by her hair and ripped to shreds by the people of her own community? So I'm not trying to get there, right? So we, there was a real dangerous nature to life then, right? As I was saying, there was this, this religious uh, upheaval happening and this, this struggle and, and Christianity was literally raising, you know, the landscape in, in an attempt to wipe out um, and instill its this new sense of civilization. And so there was no space left for uh, the intellect. And the tide quickly turned when the arch, archbishop, who uh, was, you know, tolerant of her, um, died, and his his nephew. Uh, Surreal came in. And so that was kind of the end of things. Uh, because, you know, uh, anyway, <laughs> so yeah, they, they, they basically, uh, these monks got together and in the name of this, this new archbishop, um, said that she was influencing the, the, the city leaders with her quote, satanic charms. And uh, basically, this magistrate called Peter the Lector gathered his fellow Christian zealots and hunted her down and ripped her out of her carriage and basically dragged her behind the carriage to a church where they, oh gosh, I don't want to go into all of this, but they, you know, they, yeah, they, they, they even burned her body at the altar. So, yeah, in the aftermath of her death, the University of Alexandria, where she and her father had taught, was sacked and burned to the ground. And there was basically a mass exodus of intellectuals and artists who feared for their safety. And a newly minted sense of Christianity was installed in the, in the great city. And the rest, as they say, was history. So yeah, I'm sorry I got kind of caught up in that, but it's I think it is interesting to to contemplate these two powerful personalities of Orpheus and Hypatia, who were both standing at the turning point of time when new impulses were trying to come in. Orpheus, being kind of a half man, half god was bringing in the more regulated sun forces from out of the old ecstatic ways. And Apatia symbolized the, the pagan ways of, you know, uh, putting to use the art of science, where, and then this was meeting monotheism, which was frantically trying to push in. So always, when something new is wanting to come forth, there is an upheaval. We're, we're seeing that today. 
You know, we have to recognize that that is what is happening right now. And so, dear friends, we, to return to this, this meteor shower coming from the constellation of Lyra, we're given a sign from the heavens that we are again standing at a threshold, a moment of opportunity, and we're getting help from the spiritual world to wake us up. So let me, let me just end, I'm rambling on here, but I have some remarks here that tie in from Rudolf Steiner, where he, he talks about how when comets and meteor showers appear, they, they, they ask us to ask, what is their relation to human evolution as a whole? And an important question that I hadn't recognized before is he asks, how do they stimulate the feminine principle in human nature. So he says that they, they work upon the physical and etheric bodies of human beings in such a way that they actually help to give birth to, they actually create organs, new organs, delicate organs that are suitable for the further development of the I, the, the, the highest ego, the I consciousness. That, that, that needs to get developed, especially since the embedding of the, the Christ impulse in the earth. And since that time, the significance of the comet's appearance is that the eye, as it develops from stage to, to stage, receives these new physical and etheric organs that it can use. And it's tied in with this, this feminine principle. And this quote, every meteor shower has a definite task. Human spiritual life takes its course with a certain cosmic regularity. They dissolve when they have completed their tasks. Regularity, all that belongs to the common round, is connected with the lunar influence, the, the entry of an elemental impulse always incorporating something new. This is connected with the feminine influence of the comet fragments seen in meteor showers. So, yeah, I threw a lot at you, but I hope that you can see and, and let your own mind create these interweaving here. Because, because the question is, what new impulses are wanting to come forth? in our current world crisis. Could it be that, that we are to bring a healing impulse to the divine feminine and to the arts, bringing spirituality and art into science? Food for thought. Look up, look out, look in. See you there. Peace.